We work in the emotional business, but we can't afford to make emotional decisions. We have to make reasoned, measured, business-type decisions, but we have to understand the lens of which they're applied, which is through emotion. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to another edition of the Strive Stronger podcast, where we pull apart those two words, strive, from the French word estrave, which means pushing through challenging times and coming out the other side, and stronger. It's all about being stronger physically, psychologically, emotionally, financially, in every part of our lives. Today's guest, Todd Greenberg, is recognized as one of the most successful sports administrators in Australia over the past decade. He is CEO of the Australian Cricketers Association, a director at Venues New South Wales, which oversees a portfolio of publicly owned sports and entertainment venues. And he was CEO of the NRL between 2016 and 2020. He's the former CEO of the mighty Canterbury Bulldogs NRL team. Todd is the eldest of four sons. He grew up in Blakehurst. He was a strong cricketer with the mighty Randwick Cricket Club, and he represented Australia in cricket at two editions of the Maccabi. I'll have to check on the pronunciation of that with Todd Games, an international multi-sport event for Jewish athletes. Todd loves cricket that much. He was quoted in a previous media interview recalling how he married his wife, Lisa, in the back of the members' stand, the most historical, beautiful room that there is. It was magic, Todd says, because we were from two separate religions and we wanted to get married somewhere in the middle and there's no place to God than the SCG. On top of all that, during the mid-90s, Todd was the number one fitness instructor at Body Heat in Oatley, where he held the enviable position of being the 6pm circuit instructor with the cool kids. How do I know that? Well, I was a 7.30pm instructor with the not-so-cool kids, <laughs> a class of mainly men in their 60s and 70s when the young kids had gone home. Todd Greenberg, welcome to the podcast. Oh, amazing. What an introduction. And uh, you brought a smile to my face on some of those memories, but wonderful to be with you. And uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great yes, to be it's a pleasure to connect. And it's been really interesting watching your career evolve. Let's start there. Back in the early days, you were a couple of years ahead of me doing sports science, sport coaching. And you did. You had the the, the best gig in town at Body Heat Gym. You had all the young, funky crowd. <laughs> how did you get that? And how did I end up with the 7.30 p.m. class? And it really was with guys, lovely blokes in their 60s and 70s, but there wasn't much, let's call it networking from my end, Todd. Yeah, we're going back a long way there, living those memories. We're talking early 90s, and uh, I mean, it's that long ago, I had a full head of hair, so that tells you something. But look, it was, for me, a great way to, one, keep fit, two, keep engaged with people, and three, earn a few dollars while I was studying. It was as simple as that. It was um, a great little local community gym. And, you know, you and I were studying at a time when sports science, really people were doing a degree in sports science with absolutely no idea what on earth that meant and what they would do at the end of it. So working in a gym and a fitness environment seemed like pretty much common sense and Loved it. Still got a lot of the relationships and friendships from those days right through to today now. Well, Bob and Bob and Regina were lovely people and I've lovely run with people. their daughter, Sandra, at a few events over the years at Combank as well. So, yeah, great years. I, I did get the 6 p.m. class, but it's because you left, you finished uni and went on to bigger things. <laughs> now, a rough format today, Todd, I'd like to talk about. One, the evolution for you as a person and in leadership, because it would be obvious to go straight to NRL CEO, but I want to find out some of the learnings along the way. Second thing, I do want to talk about NRL. And three, you're back with your love with cricket, now with the Australian Cricketers Association. So as a rough format, let's start with that. Number one, you, your personal life. Putting this together, it's really interesting. I said to you before we pressed record, when you know someone and then you dig in, especially when you've got a big public profile like you, I've really learned a bit. So it's, a, it's one of the blessings on doing a podcast. You can dig deep. I'm curious, growing up as the eldest of four boys in a Jewish family in Australia, 
What do you think that taught you, whether it's relationships, love, connection, open-ended? What did it teach you? First of all, I feel a great sense of gratitude for the way I was brought up and, and the family environment that I came through. I mean, there's no doubt that the leadership part of my professional journey was shaped through my childhood, and that's being the eldest of four boys. When you're the eldest of four, you set the tone, you set the scene, you set the standards in a lot of ways, and some of that happens almost by default and you don't realize you're doing it until a much later time in your life but you know as we sit here today my three younger brothers the four of us they're my best friends in the world we're as close as we were when we shared one bedroom with two sets of bunks in it at one point in time in our lives and we're still best friends today and you know i'm extremely fortunate and and through my nrl days what i learned enormously was the privileges and foundations that i grew up with that i probably took for granted for a long period of time simple things like coming home from a good school, uh, going on to a great university, um, having a meal at home every night with my brothers and my parents. I took those things for granted, thinking that that's how most people uh, live their lives. And when you work inside professional sports environments, particularly rugby league, where people come from very disparate backgrounds, what I've realised very quickly is I was extremely fortunate. So there's an enormous sense of gratitude for me on, on what I was afforded early in my life. How do you learn or... or, or maybe a better question for you is how have you unlearnt that along the way? Because you, know, you come from a, a nice, stable background. There's some wonderful parts on connection on the Jewish religion that we can all learn from. And then you're working with a lot of players from lower socioeconomic groups, just quoting facts. So, and, you know, I work in NRL with the best team at the moment, Todd, the mighty Parramatta Reels. But when you look at the demographics, a lot of players come from single family upbringing as well. have had a very different background did you have to learn new stuff? Did you have to unlearn? What, what did you go through? Well, the first word that comes to mind is I was really challenged by some of that because, you know, rugby league has a very strong Polynesian culture, very strong Indigenous culture. Uh, I think by the time I'd left the NRL, I think Indigenous players made up 13 or 14% of rugby league. And I think across the broader nation, they're sort of 3%. So that gives you some idea of that strong cultural element that sits inside in rugby league particularly, but no, the Polynesian community. Year, it's 50% yeah. or just over 50%, 50% of NRL yeah. from Pacific Nations. Yeah, and, 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 and part of that is a great challenge because they're different. You know, when someone's from Samoa or Tonga or PNG or Fiji, they all have their own nuances. And so I I really enjoyed it, but it challenged me. It challenged me in lots of different ways. Um, I formed some wonderful friendships with not just players but their families. You know, and we talked before about coming from disparate backgrounds. I had a young footballer who played 30 or 40 NRL games, earning significant amounts of money. And um, it was only realised to us at that point in time that he was illiterate. He couldn't read and write. And when you give a young footballer a form to fill out and he says, I'll bring you back that form tomorrow filled out, that's the first red flag. And that was part of the learnings, you know. And I went to that young footballer's uh, graduation ceremony at a TAFE and his mum and dad were there and, his mum was in tears saying he may well be a great footballer one day, but what you've done for him and the support you provided for him to teach him to read and write will forever be thankful. And, you know, I've got lots of those sort of deep memories that come from my days in, in footy and they're not about the wins and losses on the field. They've got nothing to do with grand final days and those experiences actually about those personal moments and those connections and trying to help people along their own journey. It was a real 
eye-opener for me as well. I've, I've got friends. I grew up in Dubbo, so I have a, one of my best mates is Indigenous, and you know, we just we grew up with Lapo's culture. But then with Pacifica nations, they are all, are all quite different. I was fortunate I had one of your former colleagues, Mark O'Neill, as their, our footy manager out there, Buckets. Uh, big man, Buckets. Buckets. He's a, a very good man. man. Uh, I'll send him this. We'll give him a hard time. But he gave <laughs> me an induction in that and just said, when you're talking to a lot of the younger players, Maisie, from Pacifica nations, they will look down because looking mm. up is they are not ready to do that yet. It's this whole hierarchy mm. when they can look up. Absolutely. That helped me a lot. Did you have that as a cultural onboarding when you started at the NRL or did you introduce something like that? Yeah, I didn't have, I wasn't fortunate enough to be given some of those tips. So my evolution of learning was by making mistakes along the way. Um, and, and some of those are hard to unlearn. You know, when I was a young man being brought up, my dad taught me to look people in the eye and shake someone's hand and show some respect. And it's not right or wrong. It's just different with Pacifica players. They aren't taught like that. So understanding and respecting people's differences is really, really important. And I was really fortunate. I flew to PNG. I spent time in Samoa. I spent time in Tonga. I sat next to the king of Tonga at a, a test match and thoroughly enjoyed his company. And so I learned through my journey all of those cultural nuances and you know, had enormous respect. Um, the one thing that I love more than anything through the Polynesian Pacific heritage is the sense of family and that absolutely strong connection they have with family. And the loyalty that goes with that is born about by some some of the behaviours you see inside their own family networks, but it's born about by how they play their football too. So oh, I love that part of my rugby league experience, that cultural experience, and enjoyed it very, very much. Yeah, I reiterate that. It's a beautiful family. And the other thing I've learned about a lot of our Pacifica plays, they can be talking to you and I, and it's almost sing-song sometimes. They're so relaxed and it just you know, sort of banter. But then when the whistle blows, it's like, it's a different type of person comes through. They have this wonderful ability to change state. I've tried to dig into that, whether it's cultural, whether it's taught, and I haven't quite got to, to the end of that. Um, you had kids at a young age. That, that, that was quite a challenge. I've read this in, in the newspaper as well. Uh, you were quoted, so you met your wife, Lisa, at 21. Another aerobics instructor, was she? Did, did, did she yeah, have the 7.30pm right. class? Or Yeah, I think she was upstairs and I was downstairs in that one gym. <laughs> so that's actually where we did meet. But you're right. I mean, Lisa was at my 21st. So we've been together for a long time. And um, oh, did you I meet her at Body Hair? I did. You yeah, did. that's where we met at the gym. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Wow. So it's got a lot to answer for that gym. But my daughter, who's recently turned 25, you know, I still say to her, she's the greatest mistake we ever made. You know, we uh, we got married and we came back from our honeymoon and my wife was pregnant and certainly wasn't planned. But, you know, one thing I've learned over my both professional and personal journey is timing literally chooses you. You don't get to choose your timing. And despite the fact we all like to be in control of things and we like to think we're in control, quite often timing chooses you. And um, we are very, very lucky, very fortunate. And, you know, we had our second pretty much soon after. And so I'm, I've got to be one of the luckiest people on earth. I'm celebrating 26 years of marriage this year with Lisa and um, our two kids are sort of well over the hump and are finishing their university degrees and we're in a pretty good spot. So I've um, got a lot to be thankful for. I'm looking up to you, mate. I've got, I've got four, including a two-year-old and a nine-month-old. So I'm a long, long way from that. Going, going early, there's some benefits of it, Todd Greenberg, but <laughs> like I can imagine 25 in the change rooms at Randwick, there wouldn't have been many, because you had you had good hair back then, good swag, there wouldn't have been many young bucks who were 25 and had kids. That would have been a shock yeah. to your system, big time. Oh, completely, yeah. And when I reflect on it, um, you know, there became a time in my life at that point where I was, you know, I was playing first grade cricket for Randwick, I was working full time, 
and I was studying for my MBA at night and uh, we just had our first child and I was 25 years of age. And, you know, I looked around at one point uh, around the dressing room and I was the only person who was married. I was the only person really with children. And quite often, most of the team would travel to England and play in the off season over there. So not a lot of them had, well, they certainly were building careers. So at that point in time, it was, well, I've got family, I've got my, my study and education, I've got my professional career and I've got cricket. So those four things, I can only do three. So one had to give. So you know what left. So that's when I finished cricket pretty early uh, as a player because I had to dedicate myself to, to other things and other priorities. Did you have aspirations to play state cricket? You ended up working there and you've worked with a lot of people who did play cricket and you came through grade. So I've never asked you this, but I'm curious, did, did you have big goals to play state and even to go higher? Oh, look, I think every cricketer who comes through the grade system likes to think that they'll wear a, a baggy blue and a baggy green one day. But it's pretty clear to me that there was one limiting feature there, which was pretty much talent. So um, I always thought uh, after after a very uh, raw experience of facing Brett Lee in a first grade game, I realised at the end of that night that my contribution to sport was probably going to be happening off the field, not on the field. So that's why I studied hard and worked hard to try to make a difference. I used to have to do the baseball mitt in warm-ups to Brett Lee off two or three steps and even then told the ball would go both ways. It was – Steve Rickson <laughs> said to me one time, well, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Get out of here. And then he – Stumper, to his credit, big shout-out to Stumper, he gave me lessons multiple times to actually follow the ball because he said, you're going to lose your teeth. What, what on earth yeah. are you doing? So. Yes, um, I can imagine uh, facing being a full steam, going into sports admin was a pretty good career choice. Yeah, much safer outcome for me at the time. I realised quickly where my strengths were, that's for sure. Well, your strength also uh, is where you choose your wedding. Uh, it was a classic reading that story. You, you, you literally, just for the fact check, you literally got married in the members bar, the back of the members bar. L- literally, that's exactly. And it came about by the simple fact that we came from different backgrounds and different religions. Lisa was from a very strong Catholic background. And as you mentioned before, both my parents were Jewish and we grew up in a Jewish home. We weren't particularly religious, but, you know, they're two different backgrounds. So Lisa and I said, well, we need to find somewhere in the middle. And I said, well, there's no place closer to God than the Sydney Career Ground. So we asked for some permission and we actually got married in the back of the member stand and had our wedding photos with our bridal party in the middle of the SCG with the member stand in the background. So, yeah, one of the great days of my life, and um, it was as close to God as I could think of. And if people are listening to this in audio, you can't see Todd light up, but, yeah, we've been talking about your kids and you lit up, but, like, you've just gone to a whole different level. Yes, getting married and going through a marriage and having it at the back of the member stand. What denomination are your kids? How have they chosen? They've both uh, chosen Catholic, so they've gone through the, the lineage of, of Lisa and... Um, you know, again, we're not a particularly religious family. It's not something that we practice by going to church and those sorts of things. But I think we we live our behaviours and we live our actions. And so that's how we've sort of raised our children. But, um, yeah, I would have no regrets out of all those choices that I've made. Uh, we've always made the right choice when it's come to that. One of the things when you have a public profile like yours, Todd, everything is in the paper. And something that was in the paper, and I've asked you for permission to talk about this, is when Lisa was interviewed saying how alcoholism had driven your marriage to breaking point and saying that her reliance on alcohol ramped up after you took over as the CEO in the NRL. And it hit rock bottom came when you and your two adult children walked out on Lisa in 2018, spurring her to seek professional help. That, that must have been a really challenging testing period for all of you. Yeah, it was. That's the, probably the understatement of this podcast so far. It was unbelievably challenging and it came right in the middle of my NRL CEO journey and um, it was not known to anybody at the time. And look, I, 
it's it's less about alcohol and it's more about self-esteem and self-belief. Uh, I think alcohol was the the crutch, but for Lisa at that period of time, the hardest part for me was watching the person you love the most in the world lose their self-confidence and lose their self-belief. And so Lisa's remade herself over that period of time. We've just recently celebrated four years of sobriety with her. And, you know, there's that great saying that not all heroes wear capes. Well, you know, what she's done to effectively admit an issue, uh, admit some self-frailties and self-weaknesses, do something positive about it, and then go on and actually help others. Uh, and now I see her helping other people going through similar uh, issues. Um, takes real strength of character. So I'm really proud of her. Mm. And credit to you too for being so open and talking about it because I-, I can imagine that would have been challenging at that time. You- you're CEO of NRL, you've got this profile, perhaps mm. a stereotype you think you should be portraying, and then you've got some real challenges happening in your personal life. How did you delineate between the two? How did you operate and, and find the blend? Yeah, hey, look, it's a good question, Maisie, because um, you know one of the skills I think that I have learnt over time, um, and if you ask my wife, she would say one of my skills is the ability to compartmentalise parts of my life and execute on a key issue and then take the next box and execute on the next one. And sometimes that can be personal, sometimes it can be professional, it can be different parts of being a professional. And I think that's a skill that's well learned over time. Uh, and I think that has helped me in those periods. Um, you know, I've always said that you're not defined by what you do, you're defined by who you are. And so sometimes in a really public facing role like the NRL, I think people make a judgment of who you are because of what you're doing. Uh, and that was never me. You know, I was always keen to do the best I could and leave the best legacy I could and work as hard as I could at that particular moment in time. But that's, that's not who I am. The most important role I have is when I walk through that front door and I'm a husband, a father, and a son, and a brother, and an uncle, and they're the things that are most important. Yeah, you work hard. Of course you do. Uh, and we're all driven professionally to be the best we can, but I'm not defined by what, what I do. I'm defined about who I am. Mm. Part, part of the research for this was talking to a guy named Greg Dyer. You have a fair bit to do with him? Yeah, chairman of the ACA and a former Australian wicketkeeper and a Absolutely cracking guy. I've loved working with him so far. He's a champion guy. I had this up my sleeve for down the track, but I think it's a really fitting time to talk about it now. Greg told me two things. Number one, he said, Todd proved on a recent tour with the Australian team to Pakistan that he is a natural for subcontinental tours. And we have recently nominated him to attend all future subcontinental (laughs) tours. I don't think you've got the email about that, but congratulations from GD. You are now doing every tour outside New Zealand, South Africa, (laughs) England. It's clear that he's used you to deliver that message because that one hasn't got to me. But, uh, yeah, when I originally took this job, I was thinking more Caribbean maybe or some other luxurious parts of the world. But certainly my first tour in this role was uh, into Islamabad in Pakistan. But you know what? It was one of life's great experiences, genuinely was. Um, I may not rush back there on a family holiday, but uh, it was a ripping experience and just awesome to be around the players at that particular time, particularly on the back of... COVID for so long. So thanks, GD. I look forward to having that conversation with you. You know, GD is just a very wonderful <laughs> man, of in, full of integrity. I, I may have squeezed that one out of him, but this is what he said yeah. seriously. Todd is one of the best networkers I have ever met. He is curious in a natural and friendly way. It is part of who he is, and it is totally authentic. He's also a very good storyteller, and he's articulate, providing real insights rather than just corporate acceptability status. 
Todd wants to connect and wants to understand other people's needs. He's already made a massive difference to the ACA and the way we operate and connect. Wow. Well, uh, I'll remind him about that when I have my next performance review with GD, but uh, it says some very nice words. And look, I've only been in this role for a short period of time, but Greg was instrumental in the reason that I joined because, you know, one thing I've learned over my journey professionally is despite we all have self-confidence in our own belief and the ability to do a certain job, what I've been absolutely learning is that you need good people around you. You need particularly in a CEO role, you need a really good chairman, you need really strong board directors, you need to have an alignment of values and vision in order to be successful. And no matter how good I think I can be or I might be, I'll fail spectacularly without that alignment, with particularly with the chairman. So when I met Greg, that was hugely in top of my mind. And as you've just articulated about Greg, he's full of integrity and a guy with a complete set of values. So probably why we're working together nicely. I've I've got a testimonial so I can say this because I've coached a number of people I don't mention, but I did some coaching with GD a number of years ago and he wrote me a nice testimonial. I felt like giving the money back to him, Todd, because I learned more from Mm. coaching Greg Dyer than I'm sure he ever learned from me. Wonderful man. Mm. But why I brought that quote forward, I think the Jewish upbringing, the family connection, having kids at a young age, the challenges that you and Lisa went through together, and it wasn't like, mm. you know, that's your problem, you you really work together. There's a real compassion and a sense of team about you. Yeah, that's an interesting analysis, Maisie, because when I was at the NRL, one of the things I got criticised a lot for was being too close to the players. I remember lots of articles being written about why would I go and talk to a player or why would I connect with a player? When a player got into trouble, I was always keen to talk to that player face-to-face. And that was different, maybe a different style to other people. But I was always conscious of doing it the way I thought was right. It may not be right for everybody, but I'm about personal connections with other people. And when you work in the sports environment, you've been doing this through your life as well as I have. When you're in working in sport, it's actually about people. To get outcomes, to get really strong outcomes, sustainable, repeatable outcomes, you're always dealing with warm-blooded individuals. And so showing a level of humanity and compassion for me is sort of 101. And without that, I think we fail spectacularly. I know you've danced between sport and corporate, or you've you've melded the two, right? When you're CEO of arguably Australia's Australia's highest profile sport, NRL, and the work you're doing with ACA, and you're also CEO of the Bulldogs. We'll get into some of the learnings from that as well. What sport has that if you're CEO of a bank – or running a consulting firm doesn't have, is fans. Ardent, fervent, passionate fans who watch the team every weekend. And when you go to a coffee shop, you go to get your hair cut. What's <laughs> I can't laugh. You go to the supermarket, you're having lunch with your family or dinner, they're going to tell you, right? You don't ask, but they tell you. So I think having oh. compassion as a leader in sport, it's essential to buffer Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. And look, there's a huge price that goes with losing your anonymity. I and mean, that's something I didn't appreciate taking on some of these roles. You know, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to get what I used to say, lots of unsolicited feedback in most days of my life. And, you know, in, a, in, in my former role in rugby league, no matter what you did, no matter how good a job you thought you were doing, at the end of the weekend, eight teams won and eight teams lost, which means eight teams fans thought that they were robbed or they'd missed out and they were unhappy. And... You know, the difference in corporate and and business uh, compared to sport is one simple thing. It's emotion and passion. And it's emotion and passion through the fans, through your customers, and it's emotion and fans through the owners and the players and the people that run those clubs. So you're dealing with a very emotional landscape. And we used to always say this regularly that 
we work in the emotional business, but we can't afford to make emotional decisions. We have to make reasoned, measured business type decisions, but we have to understand the lens of which they're applied, which is through emotion. And that's not always easy, which is why there's debate regularly about those decisions. Mm, I love that. I love I love that it's a frame. It's a really emotional business we work in, but you know, we can't be had by our emotions. You've got to regulate them. I do want to well, ask. You do. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah, a little bit more about NRL. But before we get there, have you read the book? Well, this is to get there. Have you read the book Range by David Epstein? I have quite a while ago, but yeah, it's a it's a great read. Well recommended. And one of your former colleagues, I'm sure Matthew Betsy. It's one of his favourite books. I was tipped into this mm. by Betts, the big fella. Mm-hmm. I love that. Because if I look at your career from the flamboyant 6pm circuit instructor in Body Heat, but then after, what did you do straight after university? So after university, I joined Cricket New South Wales. That was my first job and I was um, with Trevor Bayliss and myself. We were in Belinda Clark and Christina Matthews. We were oh, wow, some legends there. De- development officers, uh, the very advent of Kanga Cricket. So we were in tracksuits going out to schools, teaching kids how to hit a cricket ball. So that was my first foray straight after university. And then you went to NRL after that? You went to the Bulldogs? Yeah, I went to the Bulldogs in a um, sort of a commercial operational role for a couple of years. And then from there, I went into the stadium business and I worked for venues and stadiums, primarily at the Olympic Stadium on the back of the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And that's really where I cut my teeth commercially. It gave me an opportunity to get under the skin of every sports business model. And it was at a time when, you know, the Wallabies were flying through the Rugby World Cup in 03, Origins, Grand Finals. We had uh, concerts. We had AFL. We had cricket played at that stadium. So for me, I, I got under the hood of every model commercially of every sport. And it gave me great insight into how sport was run. So you, we knew that emotional connection. But for me, it taught me the commerciality of sport, which really it is. It's it's big business. and. Uh, needs to be treated like a business but run like a sport. And then you went from there to CEO of the Bulldogs. That's right. So I spent uh, nearly seven or eight years at the stadium and um, I had a great job there, really enjoyed myself. No one knew who I was. I had no profile. I'd never done a media interview. And before I knew it, I was standing in front of the cameras as the youngest CEO in the National Rugby League, standing out in front of Belmore. What age were you? I was mid-30s at that time. That's young. And they took a real chance on me and... I remember coming home talking to Lisa when Dr. George Papanis was the chairman there. We talk about great people and great mentors and great chairs who you work with. There's none better than Dr. George Papanis who who gave me a shot. And I remember coming home to Lisa saying, you're not going to believe it, but they've offered me this job. And boy, I'm not sure I'm ready, but I'm going to give it everything because this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And I owe Dr. George a huge gratitude because sometimes in your professional career, it's actually the hardest part is actually not doing the job. The hardest part sometimes being given the opportunity to have a crack. And Dr. George saw something in me and I was always very, very conscious to repay him. And that was obviously great grounding to really know the NRL business model. You had success with the Bulldogs. You made a number of changes. It's interesting just if coaching psychology term, Todd, you get on the balcony and look down rather than on the dance floor and scrapping. If I get on the balcony yeah. with you, it almost seems orchestrated getting to NRL CEO, if you could reverse engineer a career path to go get some work in sport that you love cricket, an easier entry, when cricket was really going through the early phases of professionalism, T20 where it's at now, we'll get to how different is cricket, unbelievable the change, but then to work at NRL on the lower levels, work for stadiums, 
it almost seems like this was orchestrated, Todd Greenberg. Love to tell you that I wrote the script beforehand, but as I said earlier, you know, sometimes timing chooses you, you don't choose the timing. And, um, you know, I was always ambitious. I am ambitious. And I, and I don't think ambition should be seen as a dirty word. I think ambition should be cultivated, should be encouraged. I, I'm really encouraging all of my staff to be ambitious. I want to see them take the next step. I want to help them grow. And on my journey, other people have afforded me that chance too. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it was orchestrated, but I've always been ambitious to try um, and and take on a challenge. And working in rugby league is a challenge. Uh, running a club is is a hell of a challenge, particularly when you first arrive and the team wins a wooden spoon and, you know, you're at the very bottom of the barrel. But people always told me, buy your stock when it's low. So that's what we did there. And, you know, watching that club rise and get taking them to a grand final and those sorts of things was unbelievably liberating and so satisfying. Uh, and then the opportunity to go from there into the governing body was the same thing, a, a great opportunity, not not knowing for a minute how hard it was going to be, thinking you might know, but not really knowing until you get there. So again, cracking opportunities, you roll your sleeves up. We used to have a phrase inside the NRL quite often where we knew something was going to happen that day or you'd get that phone call late at night. And today, we've got to put the mouth guard in and put the strap the headgear on and it's going to be hard, right? We've got to bite down hard. We've got to get through this. Why? Because this is what we're paid to do and we've got to make the best decisions, which quite often won't be popular. It doesn't mean they're not right. And in leadership, sometimes people confuse that popularity with leadership. Oh, I don't think they're, they're anything like it. Uh, quite often I made decisions that were not very popular, but they were fundamentally right. It was one of my questions, Todd. In your time at four years CEO of the NRL, you had to make a number of decisions and have some tough conversations with people around salary cap and around payments and people you were working with, had worked with, people who were friends of yours. Uh, I'm really curious, how did you approach that? Because that's, that's something you don't learn in a book. Like the, the, the beautiful stuff you said about the Pacifica heritage, you can make a few mistakes and when you're green, they'll say, oh, Todd Collins, you go to wonderful families and they'll teach you. You make some mistakes you know, along the way around onboarding with people and executive life. You, you can learn that. But how do you learn that? Because if you get that wrong, it's not just a conversation with your team. This is on the front page of every broadsheet, every morning TV breakfast show the following day. Yeah, and it's um, it's a little bit by osmosis, but it's also trusting your instinct, I think, and trusting your own gut. Um, there was a number of things that I made decisions on which I thought were just at the time on instinct, the right thing to do. I'll give you an example rather than talk theory was I remember way back in 2016 when Parramatta were breached for cheating the salary cap and we had to take their points off them and they had to go back to zero. And that was through no fault of most of the people running their football department, Brad Arthur included as the coach and the current players. And and the briefing to me from our own team was that we'll call them to come into our office and we'll explain it to them. And, and I said to them, my instinct here is to go and visit them I need to go and tell the players face-to-face. So a lot of people try to talk me down off a ledge here and said, we will look weak, you will you will be on their territory. It's not the right look. And I said, it's completely the right look because these people are going to be shattered and I need to tell them personally and I need to tell them and look them in the eye. And I remember going out to the back of Kellyville in Parramatta and Brad Arthur calling a training session. He knew what was coming and I had to sit them in a demandable building and tell the players they'd lost their points and, that was bloody hard, you know, and there were some tears in that room. Uh, but did they? the players like me? No, I don't think they liked me, but I think they respected me because I hit them between the eyes and gave them the honest truth. And 
I think in a lot of professional environments, athletes, people, they surround themselves, tell them what they want to hear. And it was my role to tell them what they needed to hear. And sometimes that was hard, but it was it was the right thing to do. Did you ever hear or have you seen Paul Ruse addressed to the players when he came on as coach to the Swans? And, you know, Ruse had gone from being one of the players, one of the boys, retired, 18 months later, he's assistant coach. I think two and a half, three years later, he's the coach. Do you know his address then? I've heard about it and I've, I've met Paul Ruse a few times and obviously a high quality individual, a great leader, but I'm imagining that he had to reset his boundaries at that period of time as well. It was uh, Dave Misson told me this because uh, he was in the room and Misso said, you could hear a pin drop, but he said, a lot of you have been my mates, you still will be my mates. I'm here to be respected, not liked, exactly that. And I'm going to have to make a few tough decisions that you're not going to like. But to win a premiership, we need to be tough. That's good advice. And I get a sense, you know, I get frustrated looking at politics in our country because I get a sense most of our political leaders are looking for popularity. And I think they would be much better served if they forgot about trying to be popular and just simply did what they think was right. I think they'd get huge rapport and they'd get huge amount of trust. And, you know, popularity and leadership are, are different commodities. Um, don't confuse them with each other because if you want to be popular, you probably don't want to be a leader. Did you get that wizard as well? Breaking news. This will be all over the broadsheets this afternoon. Todd Greenberg's next career move is in politics. <laughs> There's one Breaking thing you can news, take from Toddy. That. Absolutely never. I couldn't do it to myself. Having spent time in Canberra, uh, there is no chance I could do it. It would be the most frustrating. Come uh, on. Anthony Albanese schmoozes you with a game of tennis in Peter Fitzsimmons' backyard, rolls it out for you. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm very happy. No, thank you. All right, let's stick in the lane with NRL. Another question I was thinking about this, you know, working in NRL the last couple of years, a lot of learnings you've had, but they're not magnified. If I make a mistake, you know, I talk to people at Parramatta, if you make a mistake, it's, it's everywhere. How did you get your head around 16 clubs, 16 CEOs, 16 coaches, all very strong personalities, 16 teams who believe that they've got a chance to win, otherwise you you don't go to work, that dynamic and that power shift and just getting that right would be like being on landmines at times. Yeah, it's um, one thing that you always knew when you opened the door, that self-interest would prevail in almost every conversation. So the self-interest button comes through and, and that's okay because people represent their clubs, their interests, but you have to look through the lens of what's coming at you before you then turn that back into the decision. So, you know, I, I was always of the mindset that there was effectively in, in a role like this, there's lots of stakeholder groups. Stakeholders are a very corporate word, but there's lots of people in different subgroups, whether they're your sponsors, your investors in broadcasters, boards. But for me, the 16 clubs in the two states, so the 16 clubs and New South Wales and Queensland provided 18 key segments. And inside those segments were the big four. And the big four for me were the chairman, the CEO, the coach, and the captain. And it was my job to know from a chair changing, a CEO, a coach, or a captain changing. But it's really important when you have a difficult conversation that you're not starting from a, a zero base. So to have a conversation with someone, you need to have a relationship with them. So to do that, you have to have those relationships where you can pick up the phone to people. So, you know, coaches I spent time with, captains I spent time with, chairs and CEOs, clearly I had to spend time with them because then when you have to have a conversation, you've got that level of rapport and trust. And that takes a huge amount of time. It's an investment of energy and it's an investment of, 
of yourself because you've got to get to know people. How do you get to know people? Well, you've got to let something of yourself go in that conversation too. I've got a headache thinking about that. I <laughs> One of the things I'm blessed to do, Todd, is I, I coach a few CEOs of top 20 ASX companies behind the scenes and names will remain confidential at the moment, coach a few leaders of consulting firms and some big business people. They would have, those men and women, 10 to 12 key people in their teams. Anything more than that, they would say is too much at the high level. Now, those 10 or 12 men and women would then have multiple people down, right? So a big bank have got 50,000, but the CEO of a big bank has really got 12, maybe 15. You go your chief of staff, comms, HR, a few others. Let's say it's 15. How the fudge did you have that connection with 72 different people what process did you learn have you got a ridiculous memory are we going to see you on the chase to take over as the new host of the chase or how did you manage that i'd love to tell you i've got a great memory but i had incredibly good people around me who uh provided very detailed briefings and i was always conscious of making sure i read my briefing notes and so i was always prepared and, and armed for that next conversation but it takes time and it takes an investment of time in order to do those things. Um, but again, it goes back to that point I made before. Um, it is about people. It is about investment inside people and you've got to get to know them. And so having come out of rugby league, people say to me, which team do you support? And I don't follow a team. I, I follow individuals. I follow those people who I've got relationships with who I want to see them do well. Uh, and they move, you know, it's a very transient nature of the game. So. When Aidan Tolman, who just played his 300th game, is about to retire for the Sharks, he played with me at the Bulldogs for five or six years. I recruited him from Melbourne. Uh, his wife, Serena, and his children are great friends of mine, and and I love watching him play. He's one of the he's one of just the, the greatest souls you'll meet. But I don't care if that club wins or loses, but I want Aidan to do really well. I want him to be really strong at the end of his career. And when Michael Ennis won a, a competition or when Craig Bellamy has a win, these are people who mean something to me and I want them to do well. So those individual connections for me are the most important thing you can do in a leadership role. I've got some homework for you. And you're, you're very busy, so you may not be able to do the first bit. But Wizard, when we get the best bits or the, the, the bites, I'm going to send them to you. And will you just listen to a few for me? You are so collegiate, so generous, so sharing, so giving – so about them, and it comes through. It's, it's been a, one of the big learnings, or it's the red thread through this discussion so far. But somewhere, somehow, the big fella I'm looking at has to do something well. What do you contribute to all of this? And don't give me any answer. I'll hang up on you. Actually, I'm not meant to do that. We haven't finished. <laughs> You're going to hang up on me, right? But don't, don't give me an answer that – you like think about and tell me the right thing. I, I really want to know, when you look in the mirror, what, what, what are you bringing? What are you really proud of that you bring to every team you've worked with so far and every team you will work with in the future? That's a, look, it's a great question, Maisie. Um, probably one of the things I'm proudest of is the people that have worked with me, and I say with me, not for me, but with me, have gone on to do bigger and better things in their careers. And that's ultimately what I'm about. I want people who work with me to have aspirations to go somewhere else. And sometimes this is confronting for people because I don't want people to necessarily leave today or tomorrow, but I want them to have enough skill sets and capabilities and confidence to find the next step in their professional journey. And that might mean that 
we take a step backwards in whatever organisation that might be at that point in time. But I love seeing people grow. I love seeing people succeed. I love seeing people believe enough in themselves. How does that happen? By filling them with the confidence and belief and empowering them to do their job. So I'm a very macro type leader. I let people have enough rope to fail occasionally, but I love filling people with confidence and seeing them grow. And that's ultimately the great gift, I think, in a role like mine. Because as a CEO, what you tend to do is you tend to do less, but be responsible for more. And the less you can do and the more you can plough into your people, the better outcomes you're going to get. So short answer to the question is to see the growth in others makes me smile every day. Good, because when you first started answering that, and I was, I was enjoying it, but I was about to go, eh, wrong answer is about there. <laughs> so if you could narrate that with the report card, you know, we used to get from school, Todd is very good at dot, 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 growing, inspiring, helping others reach their full potential. Yeah, and the best coaches, I think Wayne Bennett said to me, he, he said, my job is to get these young footballers to do the things they don't think they can do or don't think they or don't want to do. And so in a leadership sense, sometimes you have people who don't have self-belief and self-confidence and it's our job to make them stand up tall, make them stand up straight, put them in front of a big group of people, ensure they've got the confidence to present well and empower them to do the things they don't think they can do or the things they don't want to do. And if you get through both those hurdles, then you develop somebody and they can go on to the next phase and bring the next challenge up. It's genuine. I can see you smiling. Have you always found it though difficult to to really focus on you? Is it is it the upbringing, the the the, the heritage, the religion? Yeah, it's probably it's probably all of those things. I mean, um, don't get me wrong. I love my own time, and since I finished in in footy, uh, golf has been probably my my great vocation, my great go to. I love being on a golf course. It's four or five hours where you literally don't look at a phone and you are challenging yourself when you're in that moment. I love that. And you're outdoors and you're putting 10 or 15,000 steps on. So I love that. So I'm not I'm not someone who doesn't love other things as well. But when you ask me the question, it's really what motivates me and what gets my juices flowing. It, it is about others. Um, you know, and on a personal sense, I see that through my children. You know, I want my children to be the best versions of themselves. Um, and have those conversations with them, give them the skills and opportunities to thrive. And again, that doesn't happen by chance. None of these things happen by chance. They come from slow, methodical steps and a long-term sustainable strategy, which you just keep chipping away at. And, you know, there's ups and downs, there's lots of valleys. Life's not a straight line. There's something my wife and I learned through her challenges is there's no straight line in life and you're only challenged and you're only really uh, enabled by how you respond when you're in one of those challenges. And There'll be more challenges for me. There'll be more challenges for you, but it's how we respond. One of the challenges you did have is with Peter Volandes, or not a challenge, but you're know, working with Peter as well. And then when you left, you resigned the NRL, and it's it, it was everywhere. I can remember it at the time, and I purposely didn't message you because everyone else would have been bombarding you. How have you processed that? So you spent four years at the NRL in a time of extreme growth. Uh, believe i haven't got the numbers in front of me but you doubled the tv rights in that time yep. uh the game gone to a whole different level like media wasn't just tv you got multimedia you new stadiums crowds funding and then you wake up and it's plastered across every broadsheet across 
every TV station for days. I, I can remember even two weeks later, I think you were spotted at the a local coffee shop and it had something like dumped Greenberg out now mm. getting coffee. And I thought, oh, God, it's brutal, right? How, how did you process that, Todd? Look, again, it's a good question. I haven't talked about that before, Maisie, because um, – you know, it's a very brutal industry. Sport's a brutal industry and rugby league's a microcosm of that brutality. And I used to say this regularly that rugby league is the toughest and most brutal game there is. And I'm talking about off the field, not on the field yet. So <laughs> It's a contact um, it sport, is, right? <laughs> it is. It's a contact sport off the field. And, you know, I mean, I, I also get a sense, and I said this before about timing chooses you, you don't necessarily get to choose your timing. And in any leadership role, I always think there's a time frame on it. And I don't have a problem with Peter Volandis, and I'm sure he doesn't have a problem with me, but we just had different views on some things and, you know, our, our personalities didn't click. That's not a slight on him or me. It's just difference of opinions and decide to go in a different direction. And so I poured everything I had into that role for a long period of time. And you come out of that, you reset, you have a few quiet weeks where you reflect and you rely on your family, you rely on your brothers and your parents and your best mates. Uh, you have lots of hard conversations with yourself and then you dust yourself off and you think, right, what's next? How am I going to respond and where do I make my next contribution? Not much more complex than that, to be honest. What was the timeline on that? Because yeah, it, it's when someone leaves a job and stuff was written about you that anyone leaving a job is hard, but when you have people making up stories, building on stories, whatever it is, yeah. That takes it to a whole different level, mate. It really does. So how long did yeah. that take, that initial process? And you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about the five stages of grief, whereas the first bit is sort of denial. That hasn't really happened. Then shock and then bargaining and then sadness and then recovery. It's not linear. But, but I am really curious, how long did you process that first bit? It was brutal. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, it, look it is brutal. There's no getting around it. Um, you can't sugarcoat the fact that when – you know, you're in the papers and there's people stalking out your house and you can't get out your front driveway for a period of time because of that, you know, that's that's not the way you want to live your life. So, yeah, it did take some time. I took uh, I took six months off and on reflection, it's probably the best six months of my life. I absolutely reconnected. You know, both my kids, you know, young adults, said some things to me afterwards, you know, over the dinner table, which was, Dad, we didn't realise you were so funny. We'd forgotten that, you know, you, you can have such a good sense of humour and that, you're not on your phone while we're eating and those sorts of things and being present when I needed to be present. And, you know, on reflection, I probably could have been a better husband and a better father during those periods of time. But, you know, you push and pull in all sorts of directions and you're working some seriously long hours and it's not easy and you don't always find the balance. Um, and on reflection, I, I think I was out of balance for a period of time there too. Um, but again, that's reflection and that's learning and that's part of the journey. But yeah, it took me, it took me a few months and, you know, you go through that, you're angry and then you're sad and then you're, you're frustrated, but then you're enthused. And then I hit the golf course and worked on a handicap and I got fit and um, it, was, it was quite liberating. And then the liberating part really was, okay, what do I want to do next? And, uh, and I got some spe specialist advice. You know, I went and saw somebody about where my skill sets could be best utilised and how do I sort of shape the next part of my professional career. And that really helped me. It really helped me figure out what I thought I was good at, but also what I was passionate about. Really interesting. You're touching on some of the construct of mental skills there, and it's the, the area that I love playing in now. Your role identity and your self-identity are two different things. They're not inextricably linked. And when they are, you crash. 
So your self-identity, you had the base, you had the family, you had the connection to really help you through that. So I think it's a big lesson for anyone. High performing, yeah. and high performing doesn't have to mean CEO of NRL. High performing could just be the best for anyone listening to this. You know, the best person you are in whatever role. Completely agree with all of that. Yeah, you have to, you have to have the real base level built before you can start to add on to it. And you again it goes back to what I said before. It's not about what you do; it's about who you are. So start with building the foundation of who you are, and then start doing things from that foundation. But you're right; people who either think they are or believe they are what they do, uh, when that's taken away from them, everything falls. And I had a very strong foundation. You know, I, I never got ahead of myself. Uh, I remember being asked a question, actually, uh, when I was interviewed for the CEO role by a board member at the time, one of the commissioners. They said, the question was, Todd, if we appoint you to this role, you'll probably be one of the highest profile people in the country. Uh, you'll be on the news cycle almost daily. How will you cope with your own ego? That was a question asked to me in my interview. And my response was, have you ever met my wife before? <laughs> uh, and it was a true answer. I said, because I can't have an ego. I can't get ahead of myself when I walk through the door at night. They're not interested in who I am as a CEO. They're interested in me as their husband or their father. And the moment I start to get ahead of myself or I think my boots are bigger than somebody else's or I'm special, I'll get knocked down a peg or two very quickly. So you don't have to worry about ego. There'll be none of that. I, I tell a similar story to athletes as they're making their way up because as soon as you go to the next level, you win the world championship, you play state of origin, you get uh, Olympics, play for Australia, you have a whole bunch of new friends, let's call them hanger-ons or hangers-on who are there for the good time. I, I think the athletes that I've seen ride that and then transition to a really good life after that still have the buddies, the friends from school, still have the connection with the family and don't take it too seriously. It's it's an invaluable learning. If you could take that out and give that in a computer chip to athletes, gosh, it would save some heartache and turmoil and stress and I probably wouldn't have a job, but you know, people would be in a very different state when they finish playing. I agree with that completely, yeah. Building uh, an athlete's base for those periods of time when they're out of form or out of selection or injured or whatever, uh, holds them in much better stead. And that base can be the foundation of family. It can be the foundation of their career that they're going to build for whatever comes next and ensuring they've got a more rounded a more rounded skill set but also a more rounded mindset because, let's face it, if you're an Australian test cricketer and you nick two or three in a row over the course of a few games, your spot's on the line and there has to be more in your life than being a batter or a bowler. There has to be more. And that's a big part of what we do now is shaping our players, male and female, to ensure they're ready for whatever comes next. That doesn't mean we want them to finish their playing careers. We want them to get as many runs and take as many wickets and be the best they can. But we want them to be the best person they can be as well. And that's a more rounded individual. Beautiful segue into point three in our rough frame. Let's get on to cricket. <laughs> First question I'll ask, though, is really about all of your evolution. Have you sought out coaches? Have you done courses? Have you targeted skills? And, and then work with people to give yourself that iOS upgrade along your career? Or have you just learnt it organically and by watching others? Both. I've had a mentor. I've had the same mentor for more than 20 years now. But for the first 10 years, I didn't even know he was a mentor. We just talked regularly. And then we sort of started, I started to realise that this person was a mentor in my life. And when we would catch up, uh, very rarely would we talk about the issues of the day. We'd talk about me. We'd talk about my value set, my principles, my balance in life, my perspectives from home and work. So I found that incredibly valuable. You know, leadership, 
in any leadership role can be very isolating, uh, can be very lonely at times. So I would suggest that every senior executive, whether it's in sport or in business, needs to ensure they're not isolated, so having good people around them, people who they can trust to have honest, direct conversations where it's okay to disagree, uh, it's okay to give feedback that you may not want to hear. I think that's the most valuable thing. So doing a lot of that over my time was important. And then in my rugby league time, I, I learned to deal publicly. So that was a, a skill that uh, I learned on the run, but then I also applied more formal learning. So I every year would do a formal set of media training. I would I would practice, I would know my lines, I would you know, work hard at it because you know, there's no opportunity that you get that you shouldn't be practicing if you want to get good at something. So I used to sort of laugh when people would say, it must come easy to you when you make a speech or it must come easy when you do an interview. Well, it doesn't come easy, but you just work bloody hard at it. And the harder you work at it, probably the better you get. Two, two things. We'll keep one as an open loop. Adam Grant, organisational psychologist, said you should have a bunch of people around you who are challengers, not just cheerleaders. We'll come back to that. When you practice the media bites, the question I've got on that, did you ever get too good? And how did you, you know, as far as you've done so yeah. many media interviews, you're omnipresent. I'd see your head every bloody week, mate, on the big screen. How did you avoid pressing play? Well, it's, it, it's interesting you ask because there was um, a girl that worked with me. We worked together for a long period of time. And I said to her at the very start of our journey, when I'm finished an interview or a radio or a TV, whatever it is, it's your job to critique me, not to be a fan. And boy, did she take that literally because <laughs> I never got a good report card on almost anything I did. I got critiqued on where my eyes were, what my body language was, what my tone, if I used a word more than once or twice in a phrase, uh, did I hit the right messages? And so I was forever, I felt under critique. And quite often the practicing and the, the content beforehand were probably more difficult than the moment itself. But I always found that I was much better when I wasn't scripted, much better when I wasn't reading lines. I always had an, an inner belief that I knew what I was talking about. I knew my subject matter. And to back myself to be a normal human person by seeing real words, not buzzwords, and not creating phrases from a textbook, just simply talking about it. And going back to that point, we started with that human connection. If you're talking about people, you have to be one of them. Well, as a construct, confidence is two things. One, it's doing the work. And two, when the door opens, it's backing yourself. Though. Yeah, absolutely. It's one thing to know what you have to do. It's a really good point. I, used to, I call the word execution. So we know our work, we've done our work, but now we've got to execute it. And, you know, people talk about pressure and that privilege of pressure because you can only really be put in a pressure situation if you've earned the right to be there. You know, people say, what would it be like sitting over a four-foot putt to win the Masters? Well, whoever's sitting over that putt has done the work and earned the right to be in that moment, to have that pressure on their shoulders and hopefully that person laps up that level of pressure and says, I've earned the right to have this part and I'm going to make it. And pressure is a privilege. It really is because you've got to work hard to put yourself under that pressure. And you can, just to close the loop, you can tell your former media and comms internal person you work with that she did very well because you've answered the Adam Grant question without me even coming back to close the loop. <laughs> well, her name's Polly and uh, I'll give her a shout out when she listens to this. She'll enjoy that very much. Awesome, Polly. You've trained him very, very well. 
ACA, you're back into where you started, cricket. So the guy who had aspirations to play for his country in Australia like every cricketer, I wasn't a cricketer. Stewie Clark, who you know quite well, had a vote that categorically, I am the worst cricketer who's ever been involved with the New South Wales and Australian cricket team. I take pride in that, Todd. I was a middle distance runner. I was there to get you guys fitter yeah, and faster. take pride in that, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. But it must be nice being back really where you started. Yeah, it is. It feels like the loop has turned, um, having been at Cricket New South Wales more than 20-odd years ago. Um, and, and hopefully what I can do in this role is bring all, all of those learnings that I've had, that rich experience, to make a difference, not just for the players, but for the game itself. I've so, I've so enjoyed getting to know the players. Our male and female players are absolute rippers. It's the only word I can think of when I talk about them. And I've met so many great people inside the sport. The players genuinely care they really genuinely care about the sport they play so i'm i'm stoked to be back inside cricket and you know the next cricket the, the game's changing uh, literally in front of our eyes the way it's structured so we've got to be nimble and we've got to be malleable enough to figure out how we work our way through that Changing massively. Another person you would have worked with over the years, the great P. Farhart. Paddy and I catch up regularly in Centennial. We go for a walk and we're walking last week and talking about uh, T20. Now the Indian franchises have got teams in UAE and also in South Africa. And Paddy and I were talking about what, what does it look like for staff now in IPL? Paddy's worked in IPL since inception, is it? 13 or 14 years and it's yeah. going to be a six-month contract soon I believe where you'll work with the Indian franchise and then go and work with South African UAE or other countries so in saying that do you think we've maybe missed the boat a little bit in Australia with T20 that was so big here well, five six not. years ago yeah look I, I really hope not yeah yeah I mean what what Paddy Farhart says is exactly right it's effectively a, a war on talent it's not just about on the field it's the best physios, the best conditioners, the best assistant coaches, the best coaches, um, they're going to be highly sought after in a global stage. And that's the one big difference that comes from being in a rugby league environment, which is really a domestic sport, compared to cricket, which is now on a global stage with huge reach, is our athletes, our cricketers, and the support networks around them are highly sought after and they have real leverage and choice. And you know, we have to make sure we give them the very best opportunities in ensuring that we can keep our tradition strong here in this country. I think the 20 years you've had is going to be a huge grounding and preparation for that because it has been much more of a command control back pre T20 days with Australian Cricket or AC, you know, Cricket Australia, uh, ACB before that. But you've got someone like Chris Lynn now who's not aligned with a state association. He was previously with Queensland. He's not with a T20 Australian franchise. So what's stopping him from going over and playing in South Africa or UAE and then going to play in the uh, West Indies and then playing the 20 in London, um, yep. oh, sorry, the 100 in London and then IPL. So yep. you're going to have a whole bunch of players potentially who won't play for their country, let alone maybe state, and they're going to be journeymen and women making really good money playing around the world for different franchises. It's a fascinating scenario from where you sit. Completely. And you're right, there's always um, that command and control. I think all governing bodies, having worked in a governing body, governing bodies, the command and control is almost second nature. And in cricket, that term to me has been described as almost master-servant between the players and the governing body. Well, that, that can't continue because players have significant choice now. And, you know, a big part of our role is to protect the future of cricket. You know, the ACA is responsible for current and former players, but we're also responsible for future players. 
So future players means we've got to make sure the game's strong and secure for the next generation of cricketers to come through. So we want to make sure people still aspire to wear a baggy green and they still want to play for their country and hopefully they can have both. They can still generate a very strong income by playing in other leagues, but also continue to represent their country. In saying that, that's going to be bloody hard and it's going to be a real challenge on cricket administrators and leaders. Well, look at Chris Green. I don't know how many games Chris have played for New South Wales, but Chris is playing in franchises around the world, getting regular gigs. So he might play five or six months. He'd be earning really good money, probably a lot more than he'd ever get with a state contract. Are players going to have to make a decision, like Chris in the future, whether they go the pathway of the traditional format with local cricket, club, state, Australia versus maybe just being a gun for hire? Yeah, I think that's the the real choice that has to come through here. And the best way to combat that, first of all, is to make sure our traditional backyard, the Australian domestic system, is strong, secure, financially prosperous, so that we can offer contracts that compete globally. Because let's face it, any athlete, cricketers or not, have got a very finite period in their career. You know, what vocation do you choose when you're in your mid-30s that you're over the hill and you've got to find something else to do? You know, that's usually at the formative part of your career. But for most athletes, you know, in the Olympic sports, 30 is considered way over the top. Yeah, Yeah, old. So in cricket terms, you know, it's not old. Um, I think cricket now is a professional sport. What's the average rugby league, professional rugby league player? Three years or a bit less than three years? Yeah, about 55, 60 games. You know, it's lucky to get through three seasons. So, yeah, that's right. So there's... um, you know, we shouldn't shy away from the fact that we're trying to professionalise and have strong earning capacity for our athletes in saying that we're trying to balance that between we want them representing their country and their state, we want them coming through and providing that pathway and getting those domestic competitions right for the next generation. In saying that, we also want them earning as much as we can and maximising their potential while they can as well. So crystal ball, get your hands, get your mitts for me, put it on the cricket <laughs> crystal ball, project for me, Todd, five years. I'll go first. You're the CEO of Cricket Australia. <laughs> I'm very Follow happy you. where I am, thank you. <laughs> uh, but look look forward five years. What would you like to see cricket like and what impact can you have to make it like that? Well, I'd like to think a couple of things. One is that um, Test cricket still has primacy uh, and that the next generation of players are aspiring to play for their country, both male and female that the gender equity balance has improved significantly over the next five-year period and our female players are earning much, much more and are being paid what they're worth, which I think will come in the next generation. We're effectively at gender equity 3.0 in cricket and I think we're well in advance of lots of other sports, but we're not going to rest on our laurels. We're going to take the next step. And I think in five years' time, there'll be a, a strong balance where we will be playing in domestic competitions all over the world with our athletes and players and cricketers but they'll also be playing for their country and we'll find that balance. And I also hope in five years' time that there's a much more strategic leadership sense at the very, very apex of cricket, uh, where the ICC are having ownership of both domestic leagues and new franchises, but also bilateral series. And we can put that together and create a calendar of cricket that makes sense. Because at the moment, I don't get a sense that that strategic leadership is there for the sport. It must be impossible. I think of the old job, you you did strength and conditioning before I got in there. You were mm. one of the pioneers, right? You were, I think, even in there before Dave Misson. But I had a good crack at cricket for nearly a decade. I think now, and some of the coaches that I still catch up with, the strength and conditioning coaches, it is hard, really hard, because you've got players all around the world. I think Dave Warner might be back at New South Wales one or two weeks a year 
you know, one or two yeah. weeks. So it, yeah. it is nigh impossible to condition, to plan. So yeah, really, really would like to see some sense or common sense prevail. Like I'm maybe getting off track. So if you don't want to go down this path, but we've, we've had a lot of players in cricket in the last couple of years put their hand up. And I like that we're now normalizing the conversation around mental health. I don't think some of it, though, is mental health. I just think some of the players are fatigued and they don't yeah, know what fatigued. else to call it. Yeah, fatigued and burnt out and they've lost that balance that we were talking about before about are they a professional cricketer only or are they that person first and foremost? And some of them are so burnt out that they feel like their whole world is just about putting the pads on and batting in the next particular game. And it's got to be more to it than that. And it's incumbent on us to help them find that balance. First of all, it's incumbent on us to help them find their voice so they can say when they're not feeling okay and normalise that that discussion, which I think we are. I think we are as a as a country, as a sport, as a nation. I think people are much more comfortable in putting their hand up and saying, I'm not okay. And that's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. You know, and the recent tragic loss of Paul Green tells me that we're nowhere near where we should be in this space. And we've got to keep normalising these conversations because, you know, you can only imagine what he was going through and we weren't there to help him. So that 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 sits sits deep inside me. I think we've normalised the conversation, but there's a lag time because to get yeah. the help, to get the support, to get the coaching, to embed that in your life takes a long time. So Absolutely. that's going to take years to catch up. What about you, five years crystal ball? What, what, have a crack <laughs> at this. What, what, what would you love to be doing? I'll ask a different question rather than, and I'll leave that open-ended, but what would you love to be doing in five years' time? Well, um, I've only been in this one for one year, so I'm hoping that um, I can secure some really good outcomes for the players over the next couple. But in five years, wow, I'll be mid-50s. If I'm not playing on single figures by then, Maisie, I'll be really disappointed. And if I'm not playing regularly, then I'll be really disappointed. Professionally, I, I don't think I can point my finger to a particular space where I'll go. But if I think about the sports and commercial and entertainment industry as a a wagon wheel. I've done a segment representing a franchise. I've done a segment representing venues and stadiums and arenas. I've done a segment representing the governing body. I'm now doing a segment representing the athletes and the players. So there's probably a few other segments left potentially that I could explore. But as I said to you earlier, timing chooses you. You don't choose the timing. Well, you've said no to politics, but we'll plant that seed. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting when you when you look at the segments. My thoughts on it would be it'd be a global sport or going to something which pulls all those together. The David Epstein range would say you've done all those segments and then you can go to the next level in whatever sport and whatever that looks like. Yeah, I mean, whenever I've been confronted with a conversation or a decision about to take another role or another opportunity, I've always thought, am I more employable or less employable if I take this opportunity and work hard there? Because ultimately what you want to do is you want to go to the next place and use all of your skills and your attributes and your experience to make a difference and then take that again to the next journey. So I'm not sure what that'll be next. What you said there might be right. It might be somewhere different. Might not be. Who knows? But I've got a very open mind as, and I'm very inquisitive. As GD said earlier, you know, I, I like to ask lots of questions and I'm curious by nature. So that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with doing the Monday night 6 p.m. circuit. At body well, heat and over and over, you might go started, full circle. Yeah, I'll, 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 <laughs> God help us. Every now and then, give me the 6 p.m. class, buddy. All right, to wrap up, this is called the Mad Minute. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. The first answer that comes to mind, hit us with it. Number one, your favourite song? Billy Joel, Piano Man. Oh, favourite movie? Uh, oh, look, I'm going to have to say Rocky Two. 
Adrian, favourite book? Mm. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, anything that he writes, uh, love his writing, but pretty much anything. Favourite possession? <sighs> My family. Favourite food? Home-cooked lasagna. What time do you wake up and go to bed each day? Uh, as I've got older, I go to bed earlier and get up earlier. So it'd be surprising to see me past 10 o'clock and I'm always up between 6 and 7. Do you have a morning routine? Yeah, try to exercise in the mornings. Um, I'm not a great exerciser late in the day, so win the morning, win the day. So I'm usually up and uh, getting something done early in the morning to get it moving. What is your favourite weekly fitness schedule? Walking. Uh, I have gone away from running as I've uh, hit my 50s and much more in my walking. My wife is teaching me a lot more stretching and core, inner, inner core uh, strength. So that's holding me in good stead for my golf game. But being active is very, very important to me. My wife is incredibly fit. I, I train to keep up with her. So that's always a good life goal. Awesome. Favorite productivity tip? Ooh, wow. I've got a few of these, but you can't live in resentment and gratitude at the same time. So by way of productivity, always come with a positive mindset. You'll be much more productive. You can choose resentment or you can choose gratitude. You can't do both. Find gratitude at every opportunity and your productivity will fly if you're in that mindset. Your most vivid childhood memory? Probably the 1980 grand final at the SCG. My dad took me. Uh, the Bulldogs played the Roosters and... Um, the Bulldogs won, and I walked away thinking, wow, that looks like a pretty cool club. And who was to know that some 20-odd years later, I was fortunate enough to run it. So sometimes really good things do happen. What's the biggest adversity you have faced? Probably the challenges that Lisa and I went through back in 2018 and you know her struggles with addiction and me not knowing the answers. Most men, most husbands want solutions, and I didn't have a solution. That was hard. I'm a person who likes to fix things. Um, and at that point, I needed to be a good listener as opposed to a fixer. So that challenged me beyond my comfort zone. Uh, I've learned a hell of a lot since then. And I'm better for it. We're better for it. She's certainly better for it. What are you most proud of in your life so far? Uh, my kids. They're two high quality individuals, great people, built of real substance. And I'm very proud of both of them. Yeah, that's it. Mad minutes. Great answers. We're about to wrap up, Todd. I've loved today. I've loved, well, there's three C's that are just punching out at me with you. It's compassion. There's a real coaching and both coaching and coachability to you. And, and, and there's confidence as well. It's a quiet, calm confidence. I think those three things threaded together, the compassion, the coaching you've done, the awareness you've got, that gives you a real confidence that, you know, backing up what GD said, makes you very capable or competent. Is there a question I should have asked you before we wrap up or is there a question you'd like to ask me? Jeez, we've gone around the, the full circle here and it's been a really interesting conversation. And um, before I came on the podcast, I quickly had a quick look at who else you've had on and had a little listen to a few of them. And congrats on the work you're doing, mate. It's uh, really important to talk about some of the things you're talking about and talk about coaching in a professional sense because it doesn't get talked about enough. So keep doing what you're doing. A lot of, not a lot of people will know that you're on my journey started in a very similar way at a very similar time. So it's great to see your smiling face on the screen and I've really enjoyed the conversation together. So thanks for having me. Thank you, pleasure. And that feedback from you, I, I, I cherish. For people who would like to get in contact with you, you don't do much social media, but where can people find you? Are you still on Twitter? Yeah, that's the only social media form that I have. Um, I try to zone out of that environment. Too much direct feedback, uh, as you would uh, solicit, but 
Twitter is where I uh, I get a fair bit of my news. So um, yeah, if anyone wants to hit me up on Twitter, they'll find me there. And uh, I'm not a great uh, poster, but I'm there occasionally. Thank you. I've loved today. I could talk to you for a long time. You've got a players association to run and you've got multiple tournaments and stuff happening. So Todd, thank you, not just for being here, but thank you for being so open, authentic and just sharing you know, wisdom, the ups and the downs from your life. There's so many learnings from today. Good on you, Mosey. Thanks for having me again. Cheers. Hey, it's Andrew, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Strive Stronger with Andrew May podcast by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to andrewmade.com where you can explore the books I have written, including MatchFit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite. Or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based Human Performance Academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, the AM edition.